So good morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us, or if you've been visiting for a little while and I just haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Jeremy. I'm the student minister here at Emmanuel. We're glad that you're here. And so uh, for the past uh, few years, we have been working our way through Matthew's gospel. Uh, and so as we've been making our way through this book, uh, one of the things that has stood out and, and has been standing out in, in increasing quantity uh, over the last several chapters has been the opposition of the religious authorities in, in Israel uh, to Jesus. This has been growing and growing. This appears for us the first time in Matthew chapter 9 uh, with questions about Jesus' methods, which then leads to questions about the source of his power to do the signs and the miracles that he did. And so over the course of, of several chapters since, we have watched these initial questions from the scribes and the Pharisees grow into full-blown rejection of him uh, that is communicated through their demand for more and greater signs from Jesus in order that he would prove himself that he is, in fact, from God. We actually had one of those episodes in the text that we looked at last week. And so, while on the one hand there has been this growing opposition from the scribes and the Pharisees, and now the Sadducees have joined the party, we have also been watching the, the disciples continue to follow Jesus despite the pushback against him. Of course, if we're honest and with, with the text, we, we know that not, as all, not all has been rosy with the disciples Though they were told back in Matthew 13 that it had been given to them that they would understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, and even though they told Jesus after this long teaching of parables that, oh yeah, we understand, we know what you're saying, uh, we've seen that they continue to struggle to get it. They continue to struggle to understand. And so this all comes to a head for us uh, this morning in the text that we are covering. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 12 says this, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's one point for us this morning. One point. And that is that anxiety is a result of not trusting Jesus. So after the latest confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus and his disciples, they get back in the boat and they start moving towards Caesarea Philippi. And so as they are going, Matthew makes us aware of a problem. Uh, the disciples, they forgot to bring any bread. And so it's, it's in that context, we're moving and we have no food. 
Jesus brings up the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so bringing them up, he warns the disciples saying, watch and beware their leaven. And so in case you're not familiar with the term, leaven was uh, used in the baking of bread to make it rise. It was actually fermented dough that was left over from the previous baking. And so they would take just a little bit and insert it into the dough for the, the batch of bread that they were getting ready to make. And so the idea is that if you add just a little bit, this leaven is going to permeate throughout the dough and it's going to cause it to rise as, as you bake. And then we learn in, in verse 12 that in Jesus bringing up leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, he's not talking about bread at all. He's making a reference to their teaching. He's telling them, disciples, you need to be on guard. They needed to be careful because if they started buying into what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were teaching, well, it would have a negative impact on them. Over time, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees would permeate throughout their own thinking and understanding, eventually uh, completely altering their view on things. It would completely change their worldview. And so the question then that we have to answer is, well, what teaching is it that that Jesus is referring to? What teaching does he want them to shy away from? And so you may remember from last week that the Pharisees and the Sadducees held completely different ideologies The Pharisees were the more conservative group, and so they placed this really high value on the oral tradition. It's not that they didn't place a high value on the written scriptures, but then they highly esteemed the oral tradition as like like a guardrail that went around, layers of guardrails that went around the law so that uh, you didn't break the guardrails, so that you stayed far, far away from breaking the law. So they placed a high value on their oral traditions. And they also believed in things like uh, the future resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels, things of that nature. The Sadducees, however, they rejected the oral traditions and they placed high esteem on the written scriptures. They also denied the supernatural. They denied the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. And so when it came to the ideologies of these two groups and the beliefs that they held to and the things that they taught, they essentially had nothing in common. And so we need to remember that Jesus' warning about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, acknowledging that, okay, these these two have nothing in common, so then what could it be? Uh, This warning comes immediately after they have demanded a sign from him. They demanded a sign from heaven because they rejected any notion that the signs Jesus had already done proved that he is the Christ. And for their persistent rejection of of him, Jesus calls them evil and adulterous. And what this What this draws out, what we've come to understand is that the reality is that their hearts are so hard that there is no sign that was going to cause them to believe. And so in this, they finally had something that they could agree on. They agreed that Jesus was not of God and that he was not the Christ. So when Jesus warns his disciples... It's obvious that what he means is their rejection of him. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their rejection of him. He's saying, watch out for and beware of their teaching that he is not the Christ. They needed to be on guard so that their lack of faith didn't take root in their hearts as well. And so following Jesus' warning, 
the disciples begin discussing what he means. They're considering what Jesus has just laid out and are, are trying to determine what it is that he could possibly be saying. Uh, but the conclusion that they come up with is entirely off base. You've probably heard the phrase like they're out in left field. They're in left field, but in a stadium that's four states over. They conclude that what Jesus was talking about was bread, that the whole point was bread. And when they realize that they don't have any bread, they become anxious. They don't have any food. So what are, what are they going to do? They're going on this journey with no food. That's, that's a problem. That, that they're anxious, and this is not just kind of like a light bulb going off, going, oh yeah, Jesus means we don't have any bread. That it's actually anxiety that is at the root of their response becomes evident in how Jesus then responds to them. So becoming aware of their conversation, his first response is not to point out that he's not talking about bread. He'll plainly tell them that in verses 11 and 12, that he's not talking about bread. But his initial response to them is to say, Oh, you of little faith. Now this isn't the first time that we have seen Jesus refer to the disciples in this way. Most recently it happened in Matthew 14, when Peter begins to sink after walking uh, to Jesus, walking out to Jesus on the water. You may also recall that immediately prior to that event is the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He sends the disciples on out in the boat. Storm comes on them while they're on the water. Jesus walks out to them. They get freaked out. They ask Jesus, if it's you, Lord. Peter says, if it's you, Lord, call me out to you. Jesus does. He gets out. He sees the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh, you have little faith. Why'd you doubt? It also happens in Matthew 8 when the disciples get really scared in the middle of a storm. Again, something similar. Jesus has been miraculously healing the people who have been coming to him. They then get on a boat, and they're going across the sea. Storm gets whipped up while Jesus is asleep. The disciples go to wake him up. They're freaked out. Lord, we're going to perish. What are we going to do? He rebukes the wind and the waves, and then he looks at them and rebukes them. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In both instances, the phrase highlights that they are not trusting in him, and they are not trusting in his power. But the first time that we saw this, the first time that we heard Jesus refer to his disciples as, Oh, you of little faith, is back in Matthew chapter 6 during the Sermon on the Mount. There the designation, Oh, you of little faith, is used in connection with their daily needs and anxiety over their daily needs. Jesus tells his disciples plainly, Do not be anxious about what you will eat, drink, or wear. In fact, in that section, so it begins in chapter 6, verse 25, and goes through verse 34, it is bracketed on both ends with the, in, the command, do not be anxious. He adds the command, do not be anxious, once more in the middle, and for good measure, he asks them twice, what is the point of being anxious? It will not add a single hour to your day. It does you no good, so why be anxious? He then, as it relates to the needs for food, he points to the birds of the air and the fact that though they don't sow, they don't reap, they do nothing to prepare themselves. They do nothing to gather food for themselves. The Father tenderly cares for their needs by providing for them over and over and over. The birds have enough to eat to sustain themselves. But then he points to the obvious. A man is more valuable than a bird. So he asks, 
Why be anxious? Because if God provides for the birds, will he not provide for his people? His point is abundantly clear. You do not need to be anxious about your daily needs. He tells them that directly. But he also says that the unfaithful, the Gentiles, they are the ones who worry about these things. Citizens in my kingdom, they don't. God knows what his people need, and he is good, and he will provide it. And so trusting that, his people consume themselves with, this, with seeking after righteousness, which that calls us to the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. But in Matthew 16, the disciples are anxious because they do not have any bread. And so what this reveals about them is that they are not trusting Jesus and have not come to understand that He is the Christ. So Jesus draws this out, draws it out that this is true of the disciples by bringing up the two bread miracles. See, the the feeding miracles don't just serve to reinforce Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on on the Mount about God's ability to provide for daily needs, though they certainly do that. These feeding miracles point to His being from God, that He is God in the flesh, that He is the Christ. God, through Jesus, miraculously and abundantly provided for all of these people. With only five loaves, 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus their families, so more than 5,000 people, were fed. With only seven loaves, 4,000 men, plus their families, were fed. There was an incredible need, one that only God could meet, and Jesus met it. But it seems that that Jesus' main concern in bringing up the feeding miracles is not even to point out how God provided bread through him for the masses, he emphasizes to the disciples the fact that, well, there wasn't just enough bread for the meal, for the immediate need of all of these people that are here. He reminds the disciples and asking them, how many baskets did you take up? That they were able to gather plenty of leftovers for themselves as well. In fact, I was in reading for this, uh, came across one pastor theologian who made the comment that in asking them to recall how many baskets that they picked up for themselves after the feeding of the 5,000, he reminds them, you, you gathered 12. He gave them each a basket of leftovers. He had provided plenty for them, along with many, many others in this moment of incredible need. And so for the disciples, light bulbs should have been going off right and left for them the very first time that this happened. Jesus does his works by the power of God. Through Jesus, God has provided abundantly. He is the Christ. His works are screaming that, and those with faith will perceive it. But the disciples were just worried about bread which revealed how little faith they actually had in him. And so the irony of the situation was that the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was already present in their hearts and minds. 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees demanded more signs because they refused to believe the overwhelming amount of evidence that they had laid out in front of them. The disciples were dangerously close to being in the same place. They had evidence on evidence on evidence in front of them that the Christ was with them, and yet they simply could not see it. If they were trusting Him, not only would they have rightly understood His teaching about the leaven, but they would have realized that Jesus could have turned the rocks to bread if He so chose. But their anxious hearts gave them away. They did not understand because they did not trust in Him just yet. But Christ is greater than their unbelief. Jesus, as I mentioned a minute ago, has already promised them that it has been given to them to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. It's against that backdrop that he questions them now in the text. How is it that you still do not understand? And then he tells them bluntly, I'm not talking about bread. And with that, he reiterates the warning, which carries with it, I think, the idea that instead of being anxious about bread, you should be concerned about guarding your hearts against unbelief, which, as we've seen, they have not been diligent to do. But in this, this is mercy and the grace of God that's made evident. He shakes loose some of the cobwebs for the disciples. In verse 12 the disciples begin to understand. And their understanding is about to give way in the next section to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Something that Jesus points to as only having come because the Father reveals it. God is overcoming, and He will have His way over their unbelief, just as Jesus promised would happen. But what was true of their anxiety is true of us as well. Our anxiety is born out of lack of faith in Christ. When we fail to trust Christ as we should, the same leaven of unbelief threatens to spread throughout our own hearts. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll have to admit that we get anxious because in the moment, whatever is concerning us seems bigger than God. We look away from God. We either forget or just outright ignore all that we know from the Scriptures and what they teach us about Him, and we fix our eyes on this seemingly insurmountable problem that is in front of us. He perhaps seems far away, or maybe He feels unconcerned with our problems because He hasn't immediately dealt with them or just by the sheer fact that he's allowed us to experience them in the first place. But this is a small view of God. In his infinite wisdom and power, God uses situations that the pagan world would say, yeah, that should make you nervous. I am in fact worried for you because of what you're dealing with. To remind us of our complete and total dependence on him. Might be that your job is in jeopardy. Your busy schedule could be overwhelming you. Your marriage may be on the rocks. Your children are on a bad path. Your health is failing. There are 10,000 things that we could list that make us anxious, ranging in severity. In our fallen state, 
Our tendency is to look at the situations giving us anxiety and rather than turning towards God, turn right on into our doubts. But this anxiety is a result of the fact that we do not trust the goodness of God to provide what we need when we need it, that the same leaven of doubt is present in our own hearts and minds. Of course, it's not to be taken as a promise that if we simply believe hard enough, God will give you whatever it is that you're wanting. That's the false hope of the prosperity gospel. You get all the rewards of heaven now if you just simply have enough faith, if you simply believe hard enough. The reality is, even if the bread does not come right away, or if it does not come at all, it does not mean that God is weak or impotent, suddenly unable to provide for us as our little faith would have us believe. It simply means that what we need more than bread, what we need more than a job, what we need more than health is to be reminded of the fact that we are always utterly dependent on the Lord. We always need reminders that our greatest joy and satisfaction is to be found in Christ, not in material things. Sometimes God in His kindness to us withholds. Withholds from us to point us back to the truth that He is enough. But our anxiety robs us of the joy from knowing and being reminded that the highest satisfaction is found in God and that He can be trusted with all of life's circumstances. Anxiety tells us to look away from the fact that God has already abundantly provided for us. Our sins, our rebellion against God, left us all spiritually impoverished. We all deserve the wrath of God that is to come against sin. But He, being rich in grace and mercy, poured all of that out on Christ Jesus in the place of His people, those who repent of sins and trust in Him. Jesus suffered for his people on the cross to provide them with the forgiveness of sins. We have that in Christ. He was raised from the dead for our justification. He was raised from the dead that his people would stand right before God. So on the one hand, if you are not trusting in Jesus, your anxiety is misplaced. If you are seeking or uncertain or just outright defiant of the gospel, you just it's not for you. Let me just say to you, your anxiety is misplaced. You are anxious about temporary things that are here today and are gone tomorrow. But there is nothing more concerning than the wrath of God that is to come against sin. God in Christ has made provision for those who turn from sin to faith in Christ to be forgiven of their sins. So let me plead with you. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus who has made peace with God for his people. His people do not have to be anxious because of the work of Christ done on our behalf. But if by grace through faith you are repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, your greatest need has been met. The disciples had feeding miracles that should have taught them that they can trust God. We have the cross and the empty tomb that teaches us we can trust him. So consider your own life. And the work that God has done in you to redeem you from your sin and to transform you, to give you a a distaste for sin and greater joy and satisfaction in Him that you are growing in. Look at the lives of the Christians around you and consider the work that God has done in them to grow and mature their faith. 
We have proof right in front of us that God is capable of providing for our needs because we have evidence all around us of the greatness of His power in providing for our greatest need. So why do you doubt and become anxious about lesser things? Christian, this goes for me too. Repent of your anxiety and fight back. See, the battle against anxiety is a fight to find our greatest joy and peace in God. So one of the first things we need to do is stop normalizing it. And when I say that, I'm not saying that anxiety isn't common, that it isn't normal to the human experience, because we certainly know that anxiety happens all the time. It is incredibly common. What I mean is to stop acting as if because it is something that is so common to us, something that we're so used to, that we just treat it as if it's okay. We may be tempted to give the disciples a pass for worrying about not having food because we look at that and go, okay, yeah, I'd be worried too. It's a legitimate reason to be anxious. But how much of that stems from desires to justify ourselves for the things that worry us? Jesus doesn't give the disciples a pass here, and we don't get one either. Do not be anxious. But the battle begins long before we find ourselves in those anxious moments. It's not about just waiting until you feel it welling up within you, and then now it's time to start trying to find the strength inside to push back against it. No. It begins with our setting aside time to read and study the Scriptures and to pray, and then fighting to protect that time because of how necessary it is in our fight for holiness. Our battle against anxiety begins by hungering and thirsting for righteousness, a desire that we feed through the Scriptures and through prayer. You know, too often we look for 10-step processes and programs to help us build up walls against the temptation to sin. But what we need more than a process and a program is to be so captivated by the God of the Bible that the idea of becoming anxious about the events of our lives just seems silly. When we give ourselves to reading and studying the Scriptures, we are confronted with truths about an almighty God that are more than capable of squashing the leaven of doubt rising up within us. We must carve out time to study the Scriptures and fiercely protect that time so that we are ready to do battle when anxiety begins to creep in. We arm ourselves against the lies of anxiety by storing up truth about God in our hearts. And we wield prayer in this fight because in prayer we say to God what we see in His Word. In prayer we say to God and we remind ourselves that He is more glorious than we could ever fathom this side of eternity and that we are utterly dependent on Him at all times and in all things. And in this way, we daily remind ourselves of just how foolish our anxiety is. But having said that, I recognize that for some, it would be negligent for me to say that you just need to read your Bible and pray and trust God harder in your fight against anxiety. You may deal with anxiety because of a traumatic experience that you had at some point in your life. You may deal with anxiety because you suffer from one of 
of any number of possible uh, mental health diagnoses. diagnoses. When it comes to those situations, I think the important question to ask yourself is this. Will the anxiety I am experiencing from my trauma or this diagnosis be with me in the new heavens and in the new earth? I'm sure that we can all agree that the answer is no. If anxiety has no place in the kingdom now, then it certainly will have no place in the kingdom then. And so that being the case, I think it's right to point to our anxiety regardless of its source as a result of the fallen nature. And what we also know to be true is that believers are to be making war against our fallen nature. We have been given a new nature in Christ. And His Spirit within us is warring against our fallen nature, putting it to death because it is no longer we who live, but Christ in us. Because your anxiety is a result of of this fallen nature. And because you believe that Christ is making all all things new, then to you, I would also say, take up and fight. Recognize that, yes, the fight will likely require more for you. That may mean counseling. It may mean taking medication. It may mean regularly meeting with a pastor or another trusted, mature follower of Jesus. It may mean uh, all of those things, depending on the, the level of, your, the, of the depth of your struggle. But what you need to know is that's okay. These things do not make you a lesser or a weaker Christian. Turning to those things, they don't reflect poorly on your faith. Those are lies that are breathed out by your enemy who prowls around looking for someone to devour. What would actually be concerning would be if you chose not to fight. If you just threw in the towel and said, I guess I'm I'm just going to live with this. We do not embrace the fallen nature. We wage war against it. There may be days, I'm sure there will be, when it seems like it's more than you can bear. Praise God for His grace in those days. And so I want to urge you, Christian, stand and fight against the fallen nature. God's Word and prayer are invaluable weapons in your fight, and you do need them most of all. The Spirit works through these means to establish, sustain, and grow our faith. But take advantage of these other graces in your war against the fallen nature. And no matter the nature of your struggle with anxiety, it's it's not something for us to make peace with. Jesus warned the disciples to be on guard against doubt and unbelief. We we must be too. So we have to recognize anxiety for what it is. It's a product of the fall. So we put it to death. Because as John John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. There is much in this life that threatens to to, to cause us to turn into anxiety. So much that we worry about and become concerned with because we take our eyes off of you. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our little faith. Lord, strengthen our faith. Grow it and mature it through the work of your spirit. It's your word in the fight that we might be grown up in salvation and in knowledge of you. Increase our affections for you. May they be greater. May we desire most of all your glory.
And may that drive us out to see worship of you increase, both in our life and in the life of the people around us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.